Today I'm going to change things up uh, quite a bit. Um, we're going to detour from our journey through the book of Romans. And uh, I did mention something last week, I think it was, that uh, there's nothing that can happen to you, nothing that you can encounter that, that uh, God has not already addressed in His Word. And so His Word is completely sufficient uh, for everything that we will encounter in life. His Word, if we understand it, if we learn it, if we study it, can uh, affect us and help us through uh, really any type of uh, topic. And uh, the topic today is uh, that I want to address in sort of a different way than, than you're usually used to me addressing is uh, a topic that's received a lot of attention in our society lately. There's a lot of interest about it. And I want to see, I want to show you what the Bible has to say about it. And the topic is self-defense. And uh, there's been a lot of shootings, a lot of violence and anger in our churches, in our society. I mean, even in churches. There shouldn't, you would think that a church would be a safe place. And it used to be that way. But, uh, you know, over time, uh, you, you saw some things happen, happen in society where uh, churches would have to put a fence around the church van because of vandalism, because it would get stolen. And, and now the, uh, the anger and the violence of this world, as we've seen far too often, has actually even come into what should be, in every sense of the word, a sanctuary. But it's not, no longer uh, a sanctuary in that type of sense. And so uh, there's a lot of uh, things that we've encountered in, in uh, society. We've seen it come into churches. It shouldn't be in churches. We've seen this type of thing come into schools, school shootings, things like that. It shouldn't be there. And we know that. Uh, these things seem to, be coming, seem to be becoming more frequent. And, um, and so I wanted to take just a moment uh, take one Sunday, really, and, and address what the Bible has to say about violence, what the Bible has to say about uh, weaponry, what the Bible has to say about self-defense. And I hope it's not just an academic exercise to you. I hope that you'll listen uh, through uh, the Holy Spirit living in you uh, for what He might have to say to you today, uh, even though it might not be a topic that you would normally hear on a Sunday morning. Um, I would say that if you were here a number of months ago and you heard my sermon uh, that, I, that I preached, uh, America, One Nation Under Wrath, uh, you might understand that uh, that sermon uh, delineates what I think is actually going on in society. And that the shootings, the things that we seem to encounter, uh, the way our nation is headed, the polarization of our nation, the anger, the attitudes... Uh, the difficulties that people have is simply a, a, these are symptoms of a deeper spiritual issue. And it's that the wrath of God is being poured out on America right now due to our telling God to get out. And we cannot offend the very name of God and expect there to be no consequences. And so uh, I would say to you, if you're looking for something that would go deeper into a, at least one man's explanation, of what's going on in society spiritually, I encourage you to go back and listen to that message. It's on our website. And uh, But today I do want to see what the Bible has to say about these issues, weaponry and violence and self-defense. And let me share with you two fundamental truths, really foundational truths that we need to establish. Number one, truth number one, is God wants you to preserve life. Okay, God wants you to preserve life. It's that simple. But we ought to have the attitude of preserving 
life. Let me ask you a question in this regard. Who does your body belong to? Well, a lot of people might say, well, hey, it's my body. It belongs to me. You know, I mean, I can do with what I want with my body. It's mine. Now, we've all heard the saying, your body is a temple. And I think most of us would understand that that comes from the very word of God. That saying comes from the Bible. And I'm going to read that passage of scripture. And as I read it, I want you to consider that question that I just asked. Who does your body belong to? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You know, today in our society, when people say, my body is a temple, usually... What they are really saying is, my body is a temple. Worship me. Or they're saying, my body is a temple. I worship myself. But the Bible is saying to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, something completely different. Your body is a temple where God dwells. God owns your body. Use your body to worship Him. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus died on the cross, His death on the cross was the price that He paid in order for you to have a relationship with God. His death bought you. His death paid for the sins of your body. And now that you have said yes to Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven, and God the Holy Spirit has come to dwell, has come to live in that same body that was once given over to sin. And so let me say this as well. If there's anybody here who has not yet believed that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead, and you have not yet confessed that He is Lord, I invite you to do that right now. Settle that with God today. Believe and confess that Jesus is alive and that He is Lord over all. Now, because your body and the life contained in it belongs to God, you have an obligation to try to preserve that life. You have an obligation to preserve that life. Your body does not belong to you. You have no right to take that life away. You should never consider suicide. Suicide is off the table. You are to preserve your life and not toss it aside as if it is of no consequence. You see, you are made in the very image of God. You are highly precious to God. You are greatly valued by God. God did not make a mistake when He made you. And it is because you are so highly valued and so highly precious, it is because 
you are an, because you are an imager of God, and because you are this royal representative on this earth of the King of Kings, that's who you are as an imager of God. A royal representative on this earth of the King of Kings. Because of all that, your life is worth preserving. Your life is worth defending. And not only is your life worth preserving and defending, but so are the lives of others too. For they too are made in the very image of God. Psalm 82 verse 4 says, Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Did you catch that? If someone is in danger, if someone's life is in danger, if the image of God in someone else is in danger, you have an obligation to protect them to the best of your ability. You even have an obligation to protect people that might harm themselves. Proverbs 24 verse 11 says, Deliver those who are being taken away to death, those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. The image here is someone that is so mentally distraught, so emotionally messed up, that their life is spiraling down and down and out of control. Who's going to step in? Who's going to reach down into that pit and raise them up out of that pit? That's our job. We have an obligation to stop those whose self-destructive behavior might end in their own death. Now, you can't rescue everyone, but you certainly should not say, well, hey, it's not my problem. I'm just looking out for myself. That attitude won't cut it with God. But what if someone did adopt that attitude? What if someone did Say, you know, I, I refuse to look out for the welfare of the lives of others. How would God view that person? Listen, if something bad were to happen and, and that person uh, that uh, is in that downward spiral ended up losing their life, God considers the selfish person who refused to help to be guilty of bloodshed. In Deuteronomy 22, here's an example. The example is, and you have to understand that back in that day, the way houses were built, sometimes you would get to a higher part of the hill, a different part of the hill, by climbing up on someone's roof. Okay, It was common for people to step on each other's homes, on each other's roofs, to get to the part of town that they needed to go. And So it's very unusual to us today. But here's what the scripture basically said in Deuteronomy 22 that if someone falls from your roof and you failed to install a, a safety fence around the edges, you would be liable for the death of that person in ancient Israel. In Exodus 21, another example, it talks about if a man owns an oxen or some other wild uh, animal, some other large animal, if a man owned an oxen that is known that oxen is known to be dangerous to the safety of people. I mean, it's an ornery beast. And that, that man would be liable for the injury or death caused by his animal because if he did not confine his animal properly. In fact, that man, because of his willful negligence, 
who owned that animal would actually be put to death if he knew that that animal was a harm to others and he did nothing about it. You see, God expects us to care enough about protecting the lives of others that we put up safeguards. And so, you need to do what you must do to preserve and protect the lives of others. It's true if you own a business. It's true if you drive a car. It's true if you're the pastor of a church. It's true if you find yourself in any type of situation where the lives of the innocent are threatened. Our duty is to preserve life. God thinks it's very important. And so the big picture that I want you to see, first of all, the first big truth is this. God wants you to preserve your life, and he wants you to preserve the the lives of others. Truth number two, the second foundational truth. God wants you to avoid bloodshed whenever possible. By bloodshed, I'm talking about the untimely death of people. Way back in Genesis, when God cleansed the earth of wickedness through the flood, after that was over and Noah landed on, the, on, on dry ground and Noah got out and built an altar to the Lord, here's what God said to him in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God, he made man. And so, if a human is attacked, that is not just an attack on a human, that is an attack on the very image of God. It is an attack on God himself. If a human's blood is shed by an act of violence, it is, in one sense, the highest and the most heinous type of crime, not only against the victim, but against God himself. The taking of a human life is such a grievous thing to God that even righteous killings have serious consequences. I want you to look at the example of King David. You probably know about King David. He was king of Israel about a thousand years before Christ. And Israel, just as a reminder, was a very special people, a very special nation, because it was part of God's plan to save humanity. It would be through the nation of Israel that God's Savior for all of humanity would come. And so when King David was the king of Israel, King David needed to protect Israel from all of its enemies all around. He had to do this at all costs. This was one of the most important tasks that was given to King David to protect God's people. And you might remember that before King David became king, when he was just a young shepherd boy, he fought who? Goliath, the giant Philistine, right? That battle against Goliath was with God's blessing. Later, when David was king, he would battle the Philistines again. And this time it was at God's command. So do you get the picture? God himself sanctioned King David to defend God's people by engaging in war. Later, King David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. 
but the Lord would not allow him to do it. King David told his son Solomon the reason why. He said, my son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Wait a minute. That's not fair. I mean, David was doing God's bidding. David had God's sanction. David was obeying God in going to war. And now God is holding David responsible? How can that be right? Please understand this very carefully. I'm going to be very precise about this. God did not say to David, you disobeyed me by going to war. No, essentially God said to David, your actions of killing men have disqualified you from a very particular kind of service to me. You see, shedding blood is very significant to God. Killing someone, even if it is justified legally and morally, it is not a light thing. It is always, always a tragedy. A month ago in White Settlement, Texas, a gunman entered a sanctuary a church and shot two innocent victims. He himself was quickly shot and killed by a well-trained leader of the security team. Two innocent people lost their lives. But the image of God was killed three times. All three deaths were tragedies. Even though one of those deaths was justified and necessary. There are always eternal consequences to the taking of a human life. Okay, so truth number one, God wants you to preserve your life and the lives of others. And truth number two, God wants you to avoid bloodshed whenever possible. Sometimes in order to preserve life, a guilty person's blood must be shed, but even if a killing is right legally and morally, there are still eternal consequences. Now, with those two truths in mind, I want to run through a, a number of other questions that the Bible addresses about lethal force and self-defense and weapons. Question, if I accidentally cause the death of someone, should I be punished? I mean, it's an accident. The answer is yes. But the punishment should not be as severe as someone who intentionally killed someone. It might be a complete accident. But you should still be punished. Let me show you in Scripture. 3,500 years ago, God gave a number of instructions to ancient Israel that might seem strange to us, including instructions about accidental killings. But there are some truths and principles that I think that we can learn about God's view on things, about God's view on life, that still apply today. And here's an example in Deuteronomy 19. The example is, you go out in the woods with a neighbor and you're going to cut down some trees. And as you swing your axe, the axe head slips from the handle and it strikes your neighbor and he dies. 
It was not intentional. It was not even a case of willful neglect, like the ox, the wild ox killing someone. It was not even that. It was by all means a complete accident. Accident. What is the verdict? The verdict is you're still guilty of killing. And just like with murder and just like with willful neglect in that day, you would be subject to capital punishment. Back in that day, that neighbor's relatives would choose someone to be what's called an avenger of blood. And that man had the right to come after you and put you to death. You might say, well, it was a complete accident. Those were the rules. However, in the case of an accident, there was a way of escape. You could flee to a designated city of refuge. A city of refuge in that day was like the old game of tag. You remember playing tag? Tag, you're it. Uh-uh. I'm not it. I'm touching mama. Mama's base. You can't get me from mama's base, and I'm touching mama. And mama says, get out of my kitchen. Get out of here. I'm not base. Go outside. Remember the old game of tag? The city of refuge was like the game of tag. And it was like base in the, in the game of tag. If you could make it to a city of refuge, you were safe. That was your way of escape. But if you wandered outside the city of refuge and that avenger of blood finds you, he could legally put you to death. Because even if it was an accident, you caused the death of his granddaddy, his brother, whoever it might have been. Question, how long would you have to stay in the city of refuge until you could return home and be free? Answer, until the high priest of the nation died. Once the high priest died, you're free to go home. The avenger blood cannot get you anymore. By the way, the city of refuge law is a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ did for us. We're guilty of sin against God. But Jesus Christ is the city of refuge in whom we hide. And not only that, Jesus Christ is the high priest who died to set us free. Now, that principle as strange as it might seem to us, as it applies to us, would, would be something like this. In the eyes of God, if you were to accidentally kill someone else, the punishment should be a merciful punishment. But please understand that even accidental deaths result in the termination of the image of God in a person. Even accidental deaths have Eternal consequences. Next question. Is it wrong for a Christian to own weapons? I mean, doesn't owning a weapon sort of indicate that you don't have enough faith in God? The answer, no. Possessing weapons is never discouraged in Scripture. Not once. In fact, in 1 Samuel 13, it was a shameful thing that almost the entire nation of Israel was completely disarmed. It was shameful. 
There were no blacksmiths in the land, it said. And no one except for the king and his son, Saul and his son, Jotham, owned any weapons. And so owning weapons is not a sign that a person doesn't have faith in God. Just the opposite. Listen to what the Bible says. Psalm 144 verse 1 says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Psalm 18 verse 34, He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. When King David was just a young shepherd, God gave him the skill to use weapons against bears and against lions. And so the idea of possessing a weapon, it's not anti-Christian at all. Next question. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples to be armed? Yes, he did. Here's the setting. Jesus and his disciples had just had communion for the very first time. They're about to go have a prayer meeting in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is what Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 36 and following. Jesus said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. The disciples said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus said to them, It is enough. Now, this is a strange passage of Scripture, and there have been a lot of interpretations of it, and we're not going to go through them all. But for our purposes here, I would make the following observations. Number one, Jesus expected his disciples to have weapons. Number two, he anticipated a time when his disciples who had no weapons would have to go out and buy some. Number three, among the 11 disciples that remained at that time, two of them had swords. That's a one to five ratio almost. Number four, Jesus expected them to carry their weapons on their person as they traveled to to the garden outside of the city. Maybe they anticipated trouble from uh, robbers or from the authorities, or, or maybe the reason was for something else. Number five, Jesus gave his consent to the weapons being present during communion and during the prayer meeting. And so, yes, Jesus did tell his disciples to carry weapons, at least for that particular point in time. Next question, should I carry a weapon with me? Well, I'll tell you what Scripture says. Scripture does not give an explicit yes or no to this, but it does give an example. In Nehemiah chapter 4, regular citizens were stationed around the city, and they were they're carrying three types of weapons, swords and spears and bows. Why? Because they were surrounded by people who hated them. They were surrounded by people who wanted to kill them. And Nehemiah instructed them in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14, Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. These citizens, these were not army personnel. These were normal everyday citizens. These citizens perceived a risk of harm to themselves and to their families. And so they carried weapons for the purpose of self-protection. And so, if you have reason to be concerned about crime, there is a biblical example of people who are ready to defend themselves and their families. Now, as a practical matter, I would just say this, that if you do choose to own a weapon, but you also choose not to carry it with you, perhaps the criminal who is ready to harm you or your family will allow you to go retrieve it. 
Or maybe not. Criminals, I don't think, are the most courteous people on the face of the planet. Except for the dumb ones that uh, make the news. You know, world's dumbest criminals. We sort of like those guys, don't we? Put their handgun on the counter so they can get out of the cigarette and start smoking. What are you thinking? You know, was that part of your plan? Was that number seven on your plan? I don't know. Anyway, next question. Can I use lethal force against a criminal? The answer is it depends. In God's eyes, it depends. Back to Exodus chapter 22, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it and sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. What in the world is going on here? I'll tell you. There are two cases here. Number one, the first case happens at night. And the second case happens during the day. Now remember, this is all pre-light bulbs, okay? The understanding is that during the day, there's light. And you can discern the intentions of the criminal. I mean, if you look downstairs, and normally the houses were built in such a way where the pen or the manger, even in Jesus' day, was literally downstairs. That's where the animals slept. They slept downstairs, and the family was upstairs, typically, in a house of different time periods. That was sort of the way it worked. And so if you hear something going on, your cow's mooing or something like that, and you look downstairs from your bedroom upstairs, and, and it's light, and you see that this guy has your oxen. That's case number one. But, at night, when it's dark, and you go downstairs and you encounter this criminal, you don't know if he wants your oxen. Or you don't know if he wants to murder you and your family. That guy needs to be stopped with lethal force. The principle is this. If you know that someone is merely stealing a piece of property, you don't have the right to kill them. Not all crimes are worthy of death. The life of a thief is worth more than a piece of property. Remember, once you kill someone, you have taken away every opportunity for that person to repent of his sin and start following Christ. You have ended his story. You have forever sealed his eternal destiny. It is a grave and serious thing to end someone's life. Having said that, if an intruder has invaded your home, and you have any reason to think that he might assault you, or rape you, or kidnap you, or murder you, or your family, you have every right and obligation 
to defend you, yourself, and your family with lethal force. Just remember, shooting someone who's coming at you with a knife is different than shooting someone who's running away from you with your weed eater. Okay? Question. Should I ever voluntarily refrain from using my weapon? He answered, yes. There are times. And even that very night when Jesus told his disciples to get some swords, that very night, within a few hours, Jesus and his disciples, they were confronted by this armed multitude at the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus told his disciples, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I think, well, I would like, I'd like to have seen that. That'd be something neat. Listen, violence is a choice that we should normally be slow to make. Psalm 11 says that the Lord hates the one who loves violence. Using your weapons is not always the appropriate response, especially, especially when you're being persecuted for Christ. You know, there is a protection that is greater than your weapons, and it is the Lord. Let me issue a few closing warnings to you. Number one, do not resort to using weapons improperly. Improper use of weaponry includes using your weapons in hatred, in revenge, in jealousy, or in pride. Using a weapon because someone insulted you or insulted a loved one is wrong, no matter how cool it looks in the movies. If you have anger or self-control problems, owning weapons and carrying weapons on your person is probably unwise. You probably need to deal with the heart issues first. Another warning, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 31 and 32 says, Do not envy a man of violence. Do not choose any of his ways. For the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate. God is intimate with the upright. Another warning, do not trust in your weapons. Trust in the Lord. See, weapons of any kind are simply tools. They're much more dangerous than, say, your common kitchen appliance. But a kitchen appliance is simply a tool to help you get a job done. A weapon is simply a tool, too. You need to be careful with that one. No weapon can guarantee protection. You do not trust in your weapons. Psalm 44, verses 6 and 7 says, For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. The very last words that Goliath heard came from the mouth of David, who said, The Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. One final word before we close. Everything that I've said today about weapons is of secondary importance. 
And that's one of the reasons that uh, really uh, caused me to pause before I preach this message today. And you might wonder, well, why in the world did you preach this message if it's secondary? Well, I preach it because people are concerned about safety in church and safety in society. And the Bible is not silent about your physical safety. You deserve to consider what it says, to take it to heart, to apply it to your life as God leads. Now, if you come away from this message and you think, well, I'm going to go get me a gun and I'm going to become well-trained and I'm going to get my license to carry and I'm going to take it everywhere I go, well, that, that's fine. That's your choice. But whether you're armed or not, your life needs to emphasize what the New Testament emphasizes. You see, when Jesus told his disciples to take up the sword, that was the last time such a thing is mentioned in the Bible. In other words, in all of the rest of the New Testament, there are no further examples of believers taking up the sword. Let me rephrase that. After the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, believers are never recorded having taken up the sword. So I just submit that to you for your consideration. Also, the emphasis of the New Testament is not on self-defense, preserving your life at all costs, but the emphasis of the New Testament is on godly living and even enduring persecution. And I would also say the Scripture does not require the possession of weapons for self-defense, but it does permit it. You see, the primary emphasis of your life is to be about spiritual things. Whether or not you have a weapon on you, it's to be about spiritual things. You see, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities. What is that? Spiritual beings. Powers. Spiritual powers. We are, we are engaged in a spiritual battle. If you decide to be armed, I would hope that your prayer is something like this. Lord, protect me from having to use this weapon against someone. And help me protect myself and others from evil.